Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. I think that his desire to discern his personal moral truths and to articulate those drove him at first and may underlie his his very best writing. And, And I think implicit in that and later explicit in his criticism of society is what is my duty to others and how must I define self-respect? And, and he comes to the realization that for all that he was someone who loved solitude, self-respect has to be articulated in response to the rest of the world. How are we treating the vulnerable and unfortunate? How did an awkward young man who'd like to sing become a hero to Martin Luther King, John F. Kennedy and Gandhi? Hello, how are you? And you're very welcome to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill, wishing you all a very happy new year. Well, on tonight's show, we're going to meet with one of the great moral questioners of all time and ask how inclusive a society are we living in today? Award-winning American novelist Michael Sims talks the importance of self-sufficiency, wild spaces and solitude to American naturalist Henry David Thoreau. And John Mann talks hate crimes and anti-Jewish prejudice as teased out in his startling new book, Anti-Semitism, The Oldest Hatred. This is a show about individualism and identity, morality and discrimination, community action and some ideas on simple living. But first, I went to the woods because I wished to live deliberately, to front only the essential facts of life. The words of Henry David Thoreau from his anti-establishment classic, Walden. Henry David Thoreau was born in Concord, Massachusetts in 1817. By the time of his death, in 1862, he'd become one of the greatest authors of the American Romantic period and today is internationally celebrated as the father of environmentalism. Thoreau's famous works include Civil Disobedience, The Maine Woods, Cape Cod, Life Without Principle and, of course, his iconic masterpiece, Walden, published in 1852, detailing Thoreau's experiences over the course of two years, two months and two days in a cabin he built near Walden Pond. But how much of an outsider was Henry David Thoreau? How radical and resilient were his days spent at Walden Pond? What exactly was his higher calling? And are Thoreau's ideas relevant today? Michael Sims is an American historian, writer and essayist and the author of The Story of Charlotte's Web, Apollo's Far and Adam's Novel and Natural and Cultural History of the Human Form. Well, Michael's latest publication, The Adventures of Henry Thoreau, A Young Man's Unlikely Path to Walden Pond, has just been published by Bloomsbury. And I have to say, is one gorgeous and hugely absorbing read. I absolutely adored this book. This man was truly an all-American hero. Well, just before Christmas, I spoke with Michael from his home in western Pennsylvania, I asked him about a common American poet Robert Frost said about Thoreau's legendary book Walden. Frost famously said, In one book, Thoreau surpasses everything we have in America. I asked Michael, does he agree? I think uh, Frost, of course, tended to 
speak over the top, but that about Walden, I think to a certain extent he's right. Hemingway had the great line that all American fiction really came from Huckleberry Finn, that when it came along, it changed everything. And I think that Walden did that a lot for nonfiction. If you look at the nonfiction of that era, no one else had combined that level of appreciation of the natural world, criticism of society, and personal history into a volume. And that's why I think that's why some people don't like it is because it has so many kinds of personality in one book. And I think for me, I think Frost was was right. Do you think it was his imaginative response to nature that really nailed it all? I do. I think it was a a way of perceiving himself as a part of the natural world that had not happened before. It grew in part out of the Romanticism just before he was born. He was born in 1817. And just responding to the world as a an integral part of it in a way that no one had done before. And I think today he's the patron saint of civil liberties, of ecology, and of nature writing. And it was because he took it to a new and different level. He was very classically trained, very well read, and he took that and made it work for his attempt to establish a personal one-on-one relationship with the natural world, not a symbolic one after a while as he moved away from Emerson and Transcendentalism, but a personal relationship with the natural world. Now, Michael, you say in your introductions, Thoreau wasn't an ivory tower thinker, sitting with his chin in his hand. Contrary to the myth, he was not a hermit. And you say, I didn't want to admire the marble bust of an icon. I wanted to gamble with a sarcastic radical. I didn't want to applaud Thoreau. I wanted to find Henry. That's beautiful. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I really felt that a number of the books I had read about Henry Thoreau seemed to be written indoors under fluorescent light, and they seemed to have lost some of the spirit and the smell of the woods and the and the sarcasm. I mean, he was a young man being skeptical about the world and, and gradually grew into someone who because he had read so much and and talked to so many of the important people of his time, he gradually grew from a sort of smart-aleck teenager point of view to someone who was actually qualified to critique the world around him and suggest alternatives. So when did you actually meet Thoreau? When did you first pick up Walden, maybe, or some other of his writings? I was a teenager, and I think uh, the first thing I read was in an anthology of natural history writing called Our Natural World that I got from the public library as a teenager. And years later, I bought a copy of that book because I'm incredibly sentimental about where I ran into books and found that a huge number of my favorite writers I had first encountered in that anthology. And then by the time I was 20, I bought the annotated Walden. And it opened up the world to me that was Henry Thoreau's context, uh, the people he knew, what everything looked like. So that the first time I went to Walden Pond myself, it was sort of a literary and spiritual pilgrimage to be there, as is true for so many people who go. Do you think in some ways he's an heroic figure? Or do you think it's fair to describe him as such? Clearly he was a very visionary thinker, a radical thinker, and hugely original. He's in my personal pantheon. He's certainly among my heroes. And he was a very difficult person to deal with at times. He was very crotchety. But he was also devoted to his friends, very devoted to his family, uh, a doting son and brother. 
And he had many admirable personal qualities. But as a writer and as a thinker, which is the only way really that all the rest of us know him, I find him really pretty heroic. And I think that's a very interesting term, hero, because he said you can march to your own drummer, you can have a personal relationship with the world. And he also had the radical idea that God was not to be found in churches any more than he was to be found out in the world. And possibly he was in the church less because he had been boxed in and, and tinted by a lot of colored images that had grown up through religion. Yeah, I would see Thoreau as very much a spiritual writer as well as a nature writer, as well as a philosopher, an ecologist, an environmentalist. I see him as a lot of different things, but it's always struck me that he's a very Buddhist thinker in lots of different ways. And it's very hard to actually pin down his own personal theology, isn't it? It is. And that's part of what I love about him is that for all of his questioning, he did not attempt to establish any doctrine. He didn't have Emerson's organized philosophical structuring approach to thought. And so he he was primarily an artist. And it's in the same way that Picasso moved through everything, gobbled up everything around him, was hugely imitative of everything he met, and then just absorbed it all into himself out of his own protean genius, and never articulated a manifesto. He simply kept growing and changing. And Henry Thoreau did that as a writer. And he had that same kind of imitative gobble up everything around him. He did it with Emerson. Uh, He did it with so many different writers. And I think that's part of what made him hard to pin down. And spiritually, I think you're right. You're absolutely right that he He was one of the first American writers to respond to and write about and attempt to incorporate Eastern thinking. He read the Bhagavad Gita. He read the Principles of Minu and so many different Eastern writings that very few Americans were reading at that time. That takes huge confidence, doesn't it? But it also takes great individualism. You have a quote from uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson at the very start of your book, and they had an extraordinary relationship. Emerson was a great mentor to Thoreau, and in a lot of different ways, Thoreau imitated his style, his thinking, his approach to life. And you would question some of that relationship. But you have a very provocative quote at the start of the book where Emerson says, Perhaps he fell all of us do, into his way of living, without forecasting it much. But he approved and confirmed it later with wisdom. Can you talk me through that? I put that up front, again, as a way of saying, I don't want to just pile more laurels on the marble icon in the museum that is the way we sometimes think of important writers such as Henry Thoreau. I think Emerson summed it up nicely, and it's true of himself and others. They weren't setting out to articulate a whole worldview or anything else. They were groping from day to day, and we forget they all could have turned out a hundred other ways. And uh, a couple of reviewers said that my subtitle, A Young Man's Unlikely Path to Walden Pond, was unnecessary because why was it unlikely? He was a very likely person to do this. But not really, not if you sit down and look at all of the different ways that the lives could have gone. And I think that we forget that these people 
It's like biographies. Sometimes a biographer will say, then he walked into the room and met the woman he would spend the next 40 years with. Well, no, he didn't. He walked into the room and he met a stranger and they chatted awkwardly and they were embarrassed or whatever. And they didn't know they would be important to each other. And Emerson and Nathaniel Hawthorne and Henry Thoreau, they didn't know they would amount to anything. They didn't know when they wrote something, whether it would get published. They had no idea we would talk, be talking about them transatlantically in the 21st century. They didn't even know, just like all of us, they didn't even know if they would actually live through the day. And I wanted, in a sense, in trying to write it this way, this sort of novelistic way, as you said, I wanted it to restore the suspense. And that's why at no point do I actually look forward in the story. I just want to get into the moment and stay in their story as it unfolded for them. And one of the mysteries in the book is about his romantic relationship with Ellen Sewell. He fell madly in love with her along with his brother. But unfortunately, I think Ellen's parents didn't think either of the uh, Thoreau brothers were good enough for their daughter. But it got me thinking then, did women actually exist in a romantic way for Thoreau after that? I know that he had great friendships with women, but he changed after that, didn't he? He did. And there are questions. There are always some some scholars have suggested that because later in his journals, he seldom speaks well of women, but he speaks admiringly of how some men look and things like that, that he might have been quietly closet gay and just was unable to do anything about it. I can't actually find any evidence of that. He may well have been, but he doesn't write about that in his journals, of course, at that time. But unquestionably, there's unlimited evidence with a number of eyewitnesses that he cared romantically for three or four different women, especially that he had a ferocious crush on Ellen Sewell, uh, whose brother was a student of his and his brother's at their school. And he wrote poems about her very romantically. And when his brother asked Ellen to marry him and she said yes and then no, after her parents said, no, you can't do that, then Henry himself, imitating his brother again, as he did so many times, asked Ellen to marry him. And she said no. After that, his response to women does grow darker, less romantic, more skeptical. He'll describe a woman he was talking to when he, at one of these very rare times that he would be at a party or a gathering and, and say that, you know, she was chattering at me and people said she was beautiful, but I don't really look at people's faces. And it just, he began just to back away from the whole idea. But maybe he just stripped love back as tightly as he did his living spaces. Yes, I think so. I think, I mean, he definitely, as many writers have, some several scholars and Temple Grandin, the autistic activist and writer, and others have said, and I try to convey this in the book, not analytically, but with texture and detail, Henry Thoreau seems to have been very much on what we now call the autism spectrum. And he was famous for not looking people in the eye when he spoke to them, uh, becoming encyclopedic about what interested him and dismissive of anything that didn't, and so on and so forth. And with Ellen Sewell, I think after that, he may have just found it too risky and difficult and confusing to try to engage with a woman on a romantic level. And maybe also he was incredibly burnt. Can I ask you, Thoreau was a great advocate of wild spaces, of walking, of resilience, tree planting, sustainability. He had a very interesting take or approach to nature and to living and to living well. Can you talk me through it all? Because nature really was his guide. Yes, I think so. And of course, he 
had a complex relationship with everything because he had a level of depth and complexity of, of thinking that was almost guaranteed to challenge everything that he turned his mind toward. But I think ultimately he continued to see nature as symbolic in some ways. And one was that he was an advocate of what we would call now intelligent design, as many people were at that time, like the deists who helped found the American Constitution were largely men who felt that there was an indication that there had been a God shaping the world, but that they didn't want to bother him every day about whatever they were doing. <laughs> and I think Henry Thoreau had that attitude about nature, that he saw in it an intricate interlocking, beautiful design of which human beings were a part. And he wanted to be connected with that and to stay connected. And he felt that a huge amount of ordinary society kept people away from that. And like his, li his line about so many men living, leading lives of quiet desperation, he already saw that industrialization was changing things dramatically and people were losing a sense of where they were from and a sense of the natural world. And he would see people working indoors all day long in 1842 in the ways that we see them now in, in 2015. And we think, you know, we've invented this over the last half century or whatever. And it was already going on a long, long time ago. And so I think he said over and over in many different ways, let us try to be attuned to the rhythms of the natural world and follow the seasons and follow the progress of the day and know that we're a part of this and not abuse it. And later in his book, The Maine Woods and things like that, uh, his wonderful travel book, Cape Cod, he traveled as someone who was almost like an animal traveling in that what he saw was the natural world and the animals as much as he saw the people. And it was really a very unusual way of saying you can live your life as a caring human being responsible for other citizens as he wanted passionately to be and still feel like an animal in nature. It was really a radical view. Yeah. Um, now, he believed that self-reliance was a virtue. There's this romantic idea of Thoreau in his tiny little hut living sustainably through nature. It's all very poetic and romantic and it's fascinating. But actually, his mother did all his washing and regularly dropped up food to him. He'd lots of visitors from his neighbouring village, Concord. So do you think we've misunderstood or mis misrepresented in some way his experience of Walden Pond? I do, I think, in part because of how he presented himself in Walden. But he very explicitly says that he liked to go into the village every day for what he called a homeopathic dose of gossip, which I think is a magnificent line. His mother and sisters did bring food to the cabin, but the thing is he was at their house every day. He helped build the house they were living in, and he went over there to do chores and help with everything every day. And he also worked in the family pencil manufacturing firm of Thoreau and Sons. And he was very much engaged with his family. And what the cabin at Walden mainly did, and he was there two years, two months, and two days only, was give him a space in which to think and listen in the woods. It was about a mile and a half from his family, and give him a sort of studio, a studio in which to work with and shape himself and sort of sculpt himself into a writer. And he wrote the full draft of A Week on the Concord and Merrimack Rivers about a trip he had taken with his brother. It was a tribute to his brother. And then he, after people started asking about what he was up to at the cabin and why he was doing this and asking him to deliver some lectures, 
he began to write what became Walden. But he didn't move there thinking he would write about that experience, as far as we can tell from his journals. I do think people have a sense of that he was a hermit, which he explicitly says he was not. And before writing about Henry Thoreau, I wrote a book about E.B. White, the essayist and the author of Charlotte's Web. And I was interested to find that Henry Thoreau was actually much more of a social animal much more of a family man, much more connected with the society of his time than E.B. White was a century later. It's so interesting. Henry Thoreau was, he was always reading the news and magazines. He was keeping up with things. He was always interested in new technology. He sometimes said he was a civil engineer. He helped completely change the pencil business by his renovations in the mechanical methods by which they produced pencils. After his father died, which I describe in the epilogue after my story ends while he's still at Walden, after his father died, he took over running the business. So he was a much more three-dimensional character than I think a lot of people realize. P.J. O'Rourke, a writer I seldom agree with but find sometimes funny, uh, described Henry Thoreau as a sanctimonious beatnik. <laughs> and I think that that interpretation is, is valid, too. People see all of these different kinds of Henry Thoreau, the hermit and all this. But the reality is a very complex, three-dimensional man who was caught up in the world around him very much. And Michael, he was also a superb teacher and by nature an activist. And there's nothing solitary about either of those vocations. Sure, there's not. Yes, that's a, that's a very good point. And he uh, had taught briefly in the school system there and found it very frustrating. And he wound up quitting that and then becoming a teacher with his brother. And several of the sources that I found so exciting in writing this book and, and that made me want to write it were the letters and diaries kept by his students so that I had all of these adventures around the conquered region, lots of dialogue that had been written down an hour or two later by his students. So I found all of that so interesting, and they talked about how engaged he was with teaching, how he wanted to convey a sense of excitement, a sense of nature. He and his brother had radical notions about there should be a long recess, there should be field trips, literally to fields <laughs> and to, to river every day. And as an activist, he, I think at first, was almost reluctant to give in to his own urge to help other people because he wanted to be more solitary. And slowly, you see the process over the years in his journals and his essays of someone saying to himself, I cannot look in the mirror each morning while there are still slaves in this nation, while our taxes support the Mexican War, while he just became an activist because his conscience wouldn't shut up. Yeah, I actually found very interesting you writing about his protest on the poll tax and when his mother found out that he was in the local prison and she legged it down literally to check was it was it idle gossip or not. He was well able to take a stand. However hyped up those stands were, he was a political thinker nonetheless. He was. He really evolved into a very interesting political thinker. And both Martin Luther King and Gandhi write in their memoirs and autobiographical writings about how they first encountered Henry Thoreau and the effect he had on them. And Martin Luther King said the American Civil Rights Movement was the manifestation in action of Henry Thoreau's thinking about civil disobedience. And that's not an exact quote, but very close to that. And he was a kind of political creature who 
had trouble conveying these things. He was often too sarcastic about uh, the world around him. And, and so therefore, in some of the writing, he comes across as, as a self-righteous preacher. But there really is a kind of tone, and people said this about his lectures when he was speaking against slavery. There is a an evangelistic kind of tone of, we can't do this. We're better than this. How can we say the things we say in Washington, D.C., and still support slavery? And he came from his family, his mother and sisters were passionate abolitionists, and they really helped draw him into the movement in the same way that Ralph Waldo Emerson resisted lending his gravitas and his dignity and his oratorical and oracular style to the abolitionist movement until his wife slowly talked him into it. You think he was both puritanical in his vision and possibly a bit naive as well? That is very well said. Yes, I do. I think the naive aspect, I think that's very good in that some of the criticisms of him as a political thinker is that he didn't have actual experience out in the complexities of it. And I think certainly he was puritanical and prudish in his lack of experience. Uh, romance made him nervous. He, he didn't drink. He, he usually just drank water. He even resisted tea. And this was an era in which Americans drank a lot. <laughs> you would see respected businessmen around Concord. There are plenty of eyewitness accounts that I was delighted to find of, as a writer <laughs> that prominent local people would be found drunk on the street because everybody drank all the time. Um, And the Thoreau family did not, and uh, Henry especially. But he did one of those things that, that some people do, and I think this is why I put that quotation about Emerson at the front of the book, too, that you, you grope your way into finding yourself, and then in retrospect, you create a story about how you became that. And I think Henry Thoreau did that about some of these other things. He had a natural bent towards certain things, and then he would become self-righteous, as so many people do, about it must be this way because I'm this way. So there were those are some of the off-putting things that I think people find about him. And that's, as you said, it's the puritanical aspect and the naive. And Michael, for those who haven't read Walden, how would you describe it? It's possibly one of the greatest anti-establishment classics. It's visionary, it's philosophical, it's quite influenced by transcendentalism as well. How would you describe it? I'm not sure I can do a better sentence than you just did, because you summed it up. I would describe it as a three-headed dragon. He has so many different strains and different personalities in him. And what made the book stand out in part, besides that he simply writes beautifully, when he wants to pause and summon up a scene, you see it and you smell it, you breathe it. So the sheer writing is what unites it all and makes him a god to many of nonfiction writers such as myself. Well, there's a reason why it's a classic, because it absolutely is one, isn't it? Yes, it really is. It's in the pantheon. And I think it was E.B. White who said that Walden risks becoming one of those books that we say we admire, but we don't read, such as the Bible. So I think what I would describe it, uh, the three-headed dragon image, I don't know, that came to mind all of a sudden because there's a grandeur and a classical ferocity to it. But there are the three strains, the personal and autobiographical, and at times using the first-person narration to sort of create a character. So that's one aspect of this is, I was here. This is what I experienced. Another aspect is let us cast aside 
what we've dressed nature in and let us tear down the veils and the old cobwebs and let us walk over to that tree and let the tree be as real as we are. Let us see that chipmunk as a living, breathing creature who has had experience today just as we have. And then the third part is, let's be honest we are not happy as Americans in the society that we are building at such a breakneck pace. And what are we doing wrong and how could we be happier? When you get all three of those things in one book, some people find that too much. And many of us, such as myself and clearly yourself, find it as a kind of revelation. I have two shelves in my living room that are books that I think that whatever they attempted, the author attempted to set out and do, these people achieved it magnificently. Walden is the first one on that list. Well, certainly the higher laws are quite something, aren't they? Can you talk to me a little bit about them and his ideas on vegetarianism and living well within the environment? He um, practiced farming himself only briefly on a larger scale while he was at Walden with his famous bean field and things like that. And he would talk about engaging with the earth and how it makes you a part of the rhythms of, of life to plant and nurture and grow. He famously has a scene about speaking of vegetarianism. He has the scene in which he uh, is talking to a man who is driving an ox across the field, and the man maintains that without eating meat, you can't build bones. But here is this magnificently strong ox who's never had a bite of meat and has built wonderful bones and muscles. So he was questioning that too, which is, as seems to me in the 21st century, more relevant than ever. The idea that you can eat without taking a life of another conscious, aware creature, and that you can participate in the world leaving less of a footprint, as we say nowadays, and that it's part of the Puritanism also. I mean, there's always people see vegetarianism as a kind of Puritanism, and it is in the sense of purity and purifying your life. And I think he did this with drink. He dismissed alcohol. He he felt he didn't want to risk that. There's a puritanical aspect, but it's also back to the origin of that word. It is an attempt to burn away all the extras and face experience as clear-headedly as he could and with as much self-respect as he could manage. Do you think his literary voice was a bit too didactic? I think at times, definitely. In Walden, he definitely wanted to change the world. However, in some of his writings, such as The Maine Woods, uh, which is three essays about trips to Maine, he's not trying to change the world. It's some magnificent travel writing. His book Cape Cod has a kind of maturity of vision and all the beautiful writing without trying to change the world. So I think if there are people who want great writing but aren't in the mood for social criticism or what some people just call grumpiness, <laughs> when he has all of those, they could turn to Cape Cod or the Maine woods and find themselves in the middle of a writing so vivid it resurrects the 19th century North America without being that kind of didactic. But if we look at things, Michael, Gandhi came out on civil disobedience and I think so did Martin Luther King. Lots of creative thinkers. Let's let's look at Tolstoy, Yeats, Hemingway. They all come back to Thoreau, don't they? Yes. And he lived such a short time. He died in his mid-40s. He really just wasn't like anyone else. He, he challenged so many things. He threw down a gauntlet. He, he's someone you must read. You can't be literate and not read him especially if you're a nonfiction writer. John McPhee, the wonderful writer for The New Yorker who's published so many books, he has spoken about 
the challenge in Henry Thoreau for the writer and the reader that he is such a great original kind of character to have come out of beginnings of so much imitation of everything around him until he found his own voice. And again, the people that that makes me think of you know, are, are Picasso or, or actors such as Cary Grant who have a protean kind of ability to just absorb everything around them and grow and grow and grow. Do you think he was the greatest American writer of the Romantic period? Or do you think that's overstating it? Like there's Edgar Allan Poe, you've got Nathaniel Hawthorne, which I know you're a fan of. I would say he's, for me, he's the most powerful of that era. There, there's just a kind of mix of vision and authenticity. And certainly Edgar Allan Poe, he's one of those that, that, you know, people like or dislike or whatever the critics keep talking about or complain at some complain about. And the thing is, we keep reading him. And with Henry Thoreau, too, uh, Walden is presented as, I just did him to go, you must read that if you're going to be illiterate, which sounds pompous. But the reason people come back to it is it's just those who love good books open it and find themselves lost in it. And again, his other writings, too, and his journals, which are, of course, gigantic. But his journals are, to me, one of those things. I like the books that didn't set out to plan to be books. Virginia Woolf's letters and diaries, uh, Henry Thoreau's, the letters of Flaubert and Turgenev that no one knew would ever become a book. And there's this kind of, in his journals, not so much criticism of the world, but a beautiful authenticity in his being alive and awake to it. A contemporary writer who has the same spirit, I think, is Annie Dillard in her book Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. Do you think it's really moral truth you're describing there? I think that his desire to discern his personal moral truths and to articulate those drove him at first and may underlie his his very best writing. And, And I think implicit in that and later explicit in his criticism of society is what is my duty to others and how must I define self-respect? And and he comes to the realization that for all that he was someone who loved solitude, self-respect has to be articulated in response to the rest of the world. How are we treating the vulnerable and unfortunate? Now, last question, and it carries, the theme carries all through your magnificent book, is how death followed him all through life. By his early 40s, his father had died, his brother, his sister had died. Consumption swept through his family and he, he, he just surrounded by death, it seems, and he was hugely resilient. But on his own deathbed, he said something which is, I just can't figure it out. And I, I'm wondering how you wrestled with this. When he was asked by a friend or one of his neighbours what God meant to him hours before his death, he said a snowstorm meant more to him than his relationship with God. I'm just wondering, after all the research that you've done in this book, how do you understand that? I think it was in part, it was that same time when someone was saying to him, since you're so close to this river to cross over to, to death, what do you see on the other side? And he was saying, look, one life at a time. And I think in this part... He was saying, and I'm responding by quoting two other things that he said, and and one is his aunt famously said, have you made your peace with God? And he said, we have never quarreled. And I think uh, he had once called himself, defined himself in Walden as a self-appointed inspector of snowstorms. And I think that he was saying, I don't need anyone else's definition of God or anyone else's critique of my relationship with God, I have been 
as present as I could be in the experience of God. And I think, of course, this is just my opinion, but I think he was saying, I have never stepped away from my sense of God, and I don't need anyone else's contribution to this. <laughs> I think he felt he had tried to stay there right in the snowstorm of experience and be as alive as he could be, facing the mysteries, facing the death all around him, facing the grandeur of the cosmos, which his era was opening up. They were discovering how old the world was. And he lived long enough to read The Origin of Species and look at how they were learning how nature had changed and how much we were a part of it. And I think he, he felt my impression from what he said in letters to others and various other things on his deathbed. He thought, well, I've, I've done the best I could to try to stay right in the center of things. American novelist and historian Michael Sims. The Adventures of Henry Thoreau, A Young Man's Unlikely Path to Walden Pond, is published by Bloomsbury and retails for in and around 15 euros in paperback. Now, if you're feeling a little short on mojo or inspiration, trust me on this one. Do yourself a favour and read this book. It's one evocative and soulful journey through masculine survivalist America. It's terrific stuff.
Talking Books on News Talk 106 to 108. And you're very welcome back to Talking Books. I'm Susan Cahill. It's lovely to have your company this evening. A question for you. What does a Yorkshire man have to say about anti-Semitism? The history of Jewish persecution is as old as the written word. Though the term anti-Semitism was only conceived in the late 19th century as it reached the beginning of its most horrifying chapter. Throughout Christian history, the hatred and prejudice towards the Jewish people have often been blamed on the betrayal and crucifixion of Christ. But ethnic Jewish oppression began long ago. So writes British MP John Mann in his forceful introduction to his new book, Anti-Semitism, The Oldest Hatred, Essays, Speeches and Other Writing. John Mann has been Labour MP for Bazet Law since 2001. In 2005, John was voted chair of the all-party parliamentary group against anti-Semitism. Well, John's latest book offers the reader an impressive selection of writing on the theme of anti-Semitism, ranging from the writings of Charlie Chaplin, Albert Einstein, Jean-Paul Sartre, to George Washington, Winston Churchill and Emile Zola. Well, before Christmas, I got a hold of John in his constituency offices. I asked him, is it fair to say that there is an accepted silence on anti-Semitism? No, there are many people who keep quiet because it's regarded as a more acceptable form of racism. I think because in Western Europe and in the UK in particular, the Jewish community is deemed to have been successful. And therefore, some people say to themselves, well, there can't be discrimination and racism against them. And of course, that's totally untrue. Do you think in some way that Jews are questioning their future in Europe? If we look at what's been happening in Denmark, in France, in some parts of Germany also, you know, the rates of attacks on Jews, verbal attacks, burning of synagogues. I know that graves have been destroyed. There seems to be quite an upscaling of this phenomena, isn't there? There is an upscaling and some of it is horrific in its content. I think the most salutary uh, change over the last two years has been how so many Jews from uh, Budapest in Hungary have moved to Vienna, which mirrors exactly the kind of movements taking place in the 1930s. And I think that's profoundly disturbing for everyone in Europe. Now, you say in your introductions that you want to reshape the debate on anti-Semitism and you want to examine um, afresh some of the red lines that have been eroded. Well, people have have regarded some of their language and behaviour as being acceptable when it clearly isn't. For example, analogies, the description of uh, Jews or of Israel as Nazi is clearly unacceptable 